2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
3: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in French Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest in this episode is Patricia Tilburg, the author of Working Girls, Sex, Taste, and Reform in the Parisian Garment Trades, 1880 to 1919. And the book was published by Oxford University Press in 2019. Hi there, Trish. Hi, Roxanne. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with
0: me. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for having me. This is very exciting.
3: Trish, I've been asking authors over going on two years now, I guess, this period of global pandemic, to just let us know where they are and how they've been doing. So
0: can you fill us in a bit? Um, So I'm in Davidson, North Carolina, outside of Charlotte, and I'm doing okay. The youngest member of our household just got fully vaxxed. So that's pretty big. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm feeling, I guess, relieved, although with new variants and such, who knows, but it definitely is a real relief to have her vaccinated, fully vaxxed. But it's been a wild couple of years. (laughs) Trish, the
3: longer standing question that I ask people who come on this podcast is, Uh, Why France? So can you tell us a little bit about how France and French history became your thing?
0: So I grew up in the suburbs of Boston. And as a kid in the 80s, I had an amazing pan au chocolat in a bakery in your hometown. (laughs) Actually, Roxanne in Montreal. Oh, yeah. My parents, we took a family kind of weekend trip and my dad ordered it. With his high school french and to me it just felt magical that he was able to communicate and that after communicating we were able to eat this incredible pastry (laughs) so uh, you know we're 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 rightly skeptical of causal histories and all that but I have a dad who is a lover of French and of France and of travel. He's actually a travel agent. And at the same time, I have a mom who is from a working class immigrant family who is a psychiatric nurse and a peace and justice activist and a book nerd. So those two things together, it feels Mm -hmm. like explained a lot about the things I came to be interested in. I took French all through middle school and high school. I didn't get to France until after college, but I was most definitely that teenage girl with a poster of the Eiffel Tower in my room. And I was listening to Les Miserables. And uh, <laughs> I was really into historical fiction and to history. I read the Scarlet Pimpernel as a, a kid. Wow. So Park yeah, cool. I mean, we're, <laughs> right. Like deep in the romance of France, right. As a kid. So Then I discovered feminism in high school, and things started to come together for me intellectually. So by the time I decided to apply for grad school, I was a history major at Trenton State College in New Jersey and a women's studies minor and an art history minor. And I came to understand that what I found really interesting was this really potent combination of gender history and cultural history, Mm -hmm. how literary and artistic and pop cultural narratives get created and are embedded in these historical contexts. So then I finally got to France after college and before grad school and dream Paris sort of evaporated, of course as it would. Mm. It was more beautiful in a lot of ways than I thought it would be, but there were also, you know, men urinating in the metro and exposing themselves and there were plaques on every building. Noting some bloody, violent act that had taken place Mm -hmm. in that place. So um, rather than being sort of turned off by this broken dream Paris, I was absolutely hooked. I knew I wanted to just spend loads of time unraveling the complexity, these competing narratives of who gets to be French, who's considered French. All of those things were really interesting to me. And I then went on to become a cultural historian of gender and sexuality in France.
3: I guess I want part two of, um, well, the origin story for this book, which is, you know, I wanted to ask you, Trish, about the relationship between working girls. I love that title, by the way. I can't, Ooh, it, Every you. time I see it on my shelf, I think of that film. Um, with, yeah, uh, with Melanie Griffith. Is that part of the origin story of the title of the book?
0: I think it probably is. <laughs> I mean, I was very much a movie buff in the 80s and 90s, and... I thought a lot about that movie when I was researching the book because it's about a different kind of American narrative of working class femininity that I found really interesting and cheesy, but also strange and, you know, all of that. Yeah, I definitely that that's one of those movies. Right. (laughs) So I'm sure Uh, I I don't think it was completely conscious when I first developed the name, but
3: yeah, it's there. (laughs) Well, that's great. And now I want to record like a second episode or do some kind of like what is it um historians at the movies for yes. working girls. Yes. All right, well we can talk about that um <laughs> on, on, off line we um, have to. So the relationship between working girls. Gosh, I was just trying to ask you another question and I went down this other track. <laughs> um working girls and your previous book Colette's Republic, so work gender and popular culture in France 1870 to 1914. So um that yeah. was published in two thousand nine. How did how does this project connect to that, that previous work?
0: Yeah, so Colette's Republic developed out of my dissertation at UCLA and my new book came out of a discovery that I made along the way in the course of writing Colette's Republic. Mm. So in 1910, Colette at that point is this gay divorcee in every sense of the word, living with a woman, um, traveling around France, taking her clothes off and performing in vaudeville and performing in pantomimes, specifically all around France. And she over the course of this career, visited a mime class in Paris that was being put on by her stage partner, this mime, very famous mime, Georges Vague, at a working woman's conservatory, the Conservatoire Populaire de Mimi Pinson. Colette used working class women throughout this period of her literary career as a backdrop to her travails as a middle-class woman joining the world of work, of wage labor. So she writes about this mime class for working women, and she writes about their joyfulness and their youth and their beauty and their ability to just work and not complain. And I thought the way that she wrote about them was really strange and condescending. And I was also intrigued, though, that there was such a place as free mime classes for working class Parisian garment (laughs) workers. I thought that was really weird. And I found an incredible archival collection at the Bibliothèque Historique de la Ville de Paris, this fonds charpentier that explored this philanthropic organization for Parisian working women that, among other things, put on free mime classes, but also did free classes in the performing arts and was a a charitable organization and got free theater tickets for working-class women. And What struck me throughout this archive was the approach by the organizers to the women they were intent upon helping. Like Colette, they described them relentlessly as pretty, jolly, hardworking, and imbued with this preternatural fashion sense. So once I began to look, it became clear this wasn't just an idiosyncrasy or a fluke of this particular organization, but that this vision of the attractive young single garment worker with her smile and her taste, and always with a Randy Flanner nearby ogling her, is everywhere in Bella Pop pop culture, in novels, in films, and songs and plays, erotic postcards, Social commentary, and then even in labor reform campaigns, this image comes back again and again. This working girl who stands in for throughout this period the superiority of French national taste and craft, but also the political and actually sexual subordination of French women and labor. So, this is the vision of the Midi Net that I come to sort of unpack in the book. And she's also the face of 80,000 real working women who are throughout this period demanding better labor conditions and have this typology to sort of fight against throughout that period or to use it to amplify their their demands.
3: Okay, belly puck, for those who don't know, I mean, it's such a lovely pair of words um, and they probably make people think of all kinds of things. What's the short version that you tell people when you say you work on the belly puck and they say, what's that?
0: That's a really interesting question. I was trained really as a fin de siècle person, right? To think of the late 19th century, particularly when we're talking about elite bourgeois French cultural history, the fin de siècle as this period of sort of pessimistic decline, the explosion of the irrational, um, Bohemian Paris, right? Mm -hmm. Thinking of the explosion of psychoanalysis and all of those things. And then the Bella Epoque is used as this term later after the cataclysm of the war to say, oh, that was that beautiful period before everything went haywire. But in fact, of course, it was not beautiful in all sorts of ways. And the, the general narrative that many people have, particularly about gender, is that sort of gender completely changes with World War I. You know, women are cutting their hair and um, smoking cigarettes and changing the oil on their cars. And, you know, <laughs> we've lost this beautiful, long-haired, corseted French woman of the of the fantasy siècle. I stop at 1919 not because the image goes away. In fact, I found lots of material about the net and Mimi Pinson throughout the interwar period um, into the 1930s and even 40s. People are using this term and beyond I just felt that this seemed like a good way to bracket off this particular turn-of-the-century French investment in a particularly nostalgic vision of France at a particularly tormented and active period in French labor politics. Mm -hmm. This is really the moment in which the French garment trades radicalize and decide to go on strike around 1900. But in the decades before that, you know, the growing push from unions and um, working class people across France to have modern labor rights. And it's not a coincidence that it's in those same decades that the midi net explodes as a pop cultural figure, right? Mm -hmm. This very pretty, um, delectable vision of labor, which is, a young single woman who's probably sexually available, who knows how to work hard, but also is not some sort of miserable character, right? Who's going to complain and and ask for more. And this is exploding at precisely the time that these women were complaining quite a bit in reality right? Mm -hmm. and taking to the street quite a bit throughout this period.
3: Yeah. It's, I mean, I, I know a little bit about this period, but you know, obviously not as much as you do, Trish, but and I and I know about this figure, or I knew a little bit, but um, and had a kind of image in my mind. But exploring that set of connections between this kind of fantasy and the materialities of working class life and especially working class women in this period is really is really one of the things
0: I find so compelling about the book. And I think fantasy is the appropriate word here because mm. This is very much what I found again and again in these primary sources. There was a clear erotic fantasy on the part of many mostly middle-class men mm. about these women. It was a fantasy, but it had incredible political import. Um, and so it's an image that I think 19th century historians and early 20th century French historians have heard of the mininette, right? She's a figure that pops up everywhere. but. It's only relatively recently that she's become this historical phenomenon in her own right. right. And to really figure out first what it means to have a generation, more than it, several generations of French men, fantasize and eroticize working class women in this very particular way. And then what do the garment workers themselves do with that image?
3: So we've said the word Medinet many times now, but, um, and I, you know, it's one of those things where I was reading your book and starting out the book and of course I've heard it. I mean, it, it's like in some songs too. And I guess I hadn't in a very long time gone back to like, what does net refer to and mean? So can you just tell us so that people who aren't necessarily French speakers or even those who are, who might be, but you know, we don't always stop to think, oh yeah, that word comes from that. So can you just tell us,
0: Trish? Yeah, like you, I had heard the word and probably even thrown it around a bit. And I think Colette used it at times. So no, I never really knew for sure what it was. So midinette comes from the moment that garment workers in Paris tended to be most um, viewed by mostly middle-class Flenner and journalists and guys on their lunch break, which was the lunch hour. <laughs> because of the structure of the garment industry in this period, in the geography of the garment industry, many of the main couture houses are sort of in the center of Paris. And at lunch, the, you know, the doors of these ateliers would just sort of burst open and all of these women would come out and eat in the park or on a street corner, maybe go into a cafe. And so this becomes the scene that is just repeated. I mean, it is really difficult for me to get your listeners to understand how often this same image of garment workers bursting out of the doors, laughing and heading out to lunch appears in songs, in poems, in silent films, in um, novels, in stories from this period again and again these rapturous descriptions of these pretty bright-eyed girls like rushing out into the street for lunch quote-unquote although they mostly in these scenes never eat or eat very little and just Mm. eat a handful of cherries and some french fries and they're very picturesque (laughs) yeah (laughs) so midi comes from this that they these women are so associated with this supposedly magical moment when they fill the streets of paris with their gaiety, and you know (laughs) lecherous men can watch them and maybe seduce them. And that comes right. again and again in this fiction as well, the seduction scene.
3: So medinette is the term that emerges a bit later. So in this period that you're looking at, the later part of the 19th century and into the 20th century, but she is preceded by another figure, mm-hmm. the Grisette. And yeah. that whole first chapter is kind of about that shift from the late 18th century figure of the Grisette to the Midinet.
0: So do you want to tell us the short version of
3: who that is and how we get from one
0: to the other? When I first found that Colette visiting that MIME class and it was part of this conservatoire popular de Mimi Pinson, which was a bunch of net taking a MIME class, but Mimi Pinson was the name of the organization. And these women were almost always never referred to by name but were just called Mimi Pinson. So Mimi Pinson is actually a fictional character from an 1845 story by Alfred Musset, And she's really the quintessential early 19th century Grisette, but the Grisette predates even her. It goes back to the 18th century, the vision of a Parisian garment worker who is a figure of passing romance for bourgeois men. And we see this type really explode in the 1830s and 40s as these women became really common cultural currency. So I do, in the first chapter, go into that history and then look at the way that the Grisette is reactivated in the turn of the century as this deeply nostalgic sign, uh, a sign of romantic longing for a Paris that is seen as lost. And in fact, from the beginning of the Grisette, In the 1830s, even, you can find odes to the Grisette that say, but they're all disappearing, right? It's it's a sense of a kind of femininity, a nostalgic traditional femininity that is disappearing. And it's disappearing alongside an older Paris. And so the Grisette is a really perfect figure for a kind of housemanizing Paris, where Paris itself is getting rid of, you know, bulldozing literally lots of its old neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And so the Grisette is inseparable from that. There's a cartoon in my book from the 1880s that shows a kind of new woman, a modern woman in bloomers on a bicycle running over Cupid, this little baby. And she's (laughs) running over the baby with her bike. And on the side of the road is this more traditionally dressed 19th century lady in a longer dress, and she has a hat box, which is very much the sign that you're a a midinette, that you're a garment worker. And the caption basically says something like, this one, the traditional woman will will save love from that other one, basically. Like, these traditional women will be the the savior of love in France. And at the bottom, it says, Mimi Pinson, um, bless your poverty, Right. Like that we need to keep those women poor essentially and laboring to maintain love (laughs) that so that she can be an object of sexual delectation for bourgeois men. Yeah. In a way that the new woman can't, right? The new woman is this castrating feminist virago. And so I do think the reactivation of the grisette nostalgia. Is is in reaction in part probably to the new woman, but also the the MIDI net herself is a is a more traditional woman, a less threatening new woman, a less threatening modern woman.
3: Yeah, that was really interesting to to sort of think about and read about the the relationships between these historical figures of women, not just working class women, but especially working class women, and then yeah, how these different female and feminine figures around this period are all expressing in different ways, this intersection Mm. of like capital and labor Mm -hmm. and like the urban landscape and culture and male predatory and other forms of pleasure and sexuality. And then also the nation, either the nation's degradation Mm -hmm. or the nation's pride. Could Could you talk a little bit, Trish, about the book as a type of labor history?
0: Yeah. I mean, I am a cultural historian by training and I would not have been able to do this project without the incredible work of generations of French labor historians. Mm. The Midi Nets strikes in the Bellapoc and efforts at labor reform in their industry were important and significant, but they've often been somewhat side notes to larger labor actions. This was an industry, the garment trades, that was slow to action. Mm. In their day, they were often sidelined and mocked to some extent by even socialist labor organizers. But what I found was that the Mininet is this cultural figure is an outsized presence, right? She's even ubiquitous. But within labor history, she's just this sort of side figure like, oh, those garment workers didn't really, they were slow to unionize. They didn't really know what they were doing. So on one side, we've got cultural historians who've interrogated the Parisian picturesque as a modernist invention framed by bourgeois, mostly male anxieties about urbanism and industrialization. And here, the MidiNet is everywhere, right? But only as a figure of fantasy and entertainment and sexual adventure. On the other hand, you've got labor historians who've produced these voluminous research on working class political movements and social reform. And here, Parisian garment workers are there for sure. I don't want to imply that they're not, but they're more sidelined, I think. Mm -hmm. And I, I wanted to try to bring those things together and understand that this very bourgeois Parisian picturesque, that includes the midi-net as a figure of fantasy, actually had real consequences for the way that labor reform, particularly in the garment trades, played out. And we see it kind of threaded throughout, and we see garment workers themselves very aware of this image, and at times using it, at times rejecting it, trying to push against it. Feeling themselves um, boxed into a corner by that vision. So that's what I meant by trying to bring together cultural history and labor history mm-hmm. in that way, right?
3: Trish, we've talked about sources along the way here in lots of different ways. What are the highlights that you would want us to, to be aware of in terms of your research and also the relationship between this figure, I guess, and these actual? 80,000 or so, um, you know, working women, like how you're getting at that through your source material.
0: The great challenge for me with this book was finding the voices of these garment workers. Mm. It's, there's a dearth of French working women's autobiographies from this period in contrast to a relative plenty of such documents in the German workers movement, Mm. for example. Um, there are some memoirs there, which I was able to look at, I was able to find their voices, though, in unusual places and unexpected places. So letters to the editor of some of these working women's magazines, for example, that were often, you know, magazines put out by, let's say, this philanthropic organization, but garment workers would write in asking for advice or expressing an opinion about something. Um, And of course, those are edited, and there's all sorts of problems with using that. But I also found speeches and writing by some of the garment workers who became leading labor activists in the strikes of this period. I found um, in the archive postcards from soldiers that they wrote to the garment workers who were helping out with some philanthropic stuff during the war. So I really made an effort to look through these government inquiries on the garment trades that in some cases involved interviews with garment workers themselves. I went to the archives of the Musée des Arts Décoratifs, Mode et Textile, the Musée de la Mode, to look at the archival materials related to various fashion houses and designers like Madeleine Vionnet, who was herself a a former garment worker. Mm. I looked at the police archives. You've got some really great police informant reports that, you know, police informants that are at the union meetings and at the strikes and writing about what they saw, which again, you need to take some of that with a, <laughs> a grain of salt. And lots of silent films and newsreels, uh, songbooks, mm. really wonderful collection of songbooks at the the Bibliothèque Nationale in the Louvois um, site. I made a real effort in the structure of each chapter to often begin with the level of representation, th- this fantasy of these women. So in the second chapter, I'm looking at particularly debates around industry regulation, workplace Uh, dangers and such. And so some of the commissions on night work and the garment trades where all sorts of government inspectors and delegates from the Labor Dispute Board come together to talk about what should we do? Should we outlaw night work? And you also have couturier, very elite couturier in that. And I found in that commission, for example, there were two women, uh, only two women on the commission and both were 20 something garment workers. One was a seamstress, Clémence Juslin, and a flower maker, Stéphanie Bouvard and they both were activists and leaders within their industry in terms of unionizing. One of them created the Flower Workers and Feather Workers Union, and they're at these deliberations in 1900 and 1901, and you can see in the transcript, essentially, of the deliberations that all, all the other members are men, government inspectors and couturiers, and they're sort of working upon the assumption, these are women that we are going to save from the abuses of overwork and low salaries. But again and again, they're coming back to this fantasy of what this work is like and what these women are like. And Bouvard and Juslin keep trying to kind of get into the conversation. Yeah. At one point, they try to talk about the low salaries and that that actually is the main problem that needs to be tackled, right? Like at the end of the day, if they were paid more, all of these other things would, would be okay when they make these criticisms, you would see again and again, the couturier like Gaston Worth would enthuse about the special taste of these female workers, right? The, but you're so tasteful, you you represent France on the national stage, like how could it possibly be that you're being paid too little, right, right. <laughs> essentially? So I was interested in the rhetorical investments that are being made, but then how working women try to kind of get themselves into these conversations.
3: Yeah, no, the structure of the book, I mean, it you know starts off chronologically with this sort of backstory of how we get to the media net. And then you move through these chapters, you know, sort of in the middle there that really look at that interaction between the images of the media net and garment work reform around this period, including things like well, speaking of lunch, the lunch rooms, the conservatory, yes. you know, different mm-hmm. kinds of agitation around working conditions and this issue of national pride. And I, I could have asked you this earlier, Trish, but, you know, you just referenced and it's, you know, key to to chapter two, but is really also there throughout the book, this issue of taste. And, mm. you know, there are these things that we think of as, I mean, apart from the fact that it's, these are french women and <laughs> this is set in france and you know the mm-hmm. parisian landscape and all of those things but you know taste beauty fashion these things that have very particular historical trajectories and meanings in the french context and i guess mm. uh yeah i want to ask you about how the medinet is different from or connected to both i guess to you know 19th century turn of the century uh, working women in this in the garment industry in, in Britain, you know, mm. I'm going back to my exam reading list now. So tell me about your relationship <laughs> to Judy Walkowitz. Tell me about your relationship to Kathy Pice. Yeah. That's all I have oh. right now. <laughs> From, it was a long time <laughs> ago. So yeah. And and all the other wonderful historians who I'm sure have worked on these figures.
0: <laughs> that's great. So one of the historiographical interventions I was trying to to make here was that even as the MidiNet's body is, constantly again and again being imagined as this consumable piece of the urban pleasure landscape in Paris, essentially, the Medina did have this weapon, right, of a nationally significant tastefulness that, that particularly in this period, as France sees itself being bested in most industrial ways by Britain and Germany particularly, they're really doubling down on, but the thing we do better, right, mm. than the English and the Germans is our taste and craft that we have this patrimoine of tastefulness mm-hmm. and of craft. So historians have talked a lot about this, that the burden of safeguarding French national style in the 19th century, particularly rested squarely on the shoulders of the bourgeois woman, the homemaker. But this discourse around French taste, which is absolutely, you know, very, very important, does largely exclude working class women. And I started questioning, was this really the case in actuality? Mm. And My research of the Mininet suggested that by the early 20th century, the working class Parisienne had assumed a similarly central symbolic role as a guardian of French taste. She was even presented at times by couture tradesmen and by government officials as an antidote to bourgeois feminine consumption. Because if you think about it, she's this perfect figure of tastefulness because she's not actually wasting anyone's money on buying all of this beautiful, tasteful fashion, Mm. right? The, The fears about bourgeois feminine consumption, the woman who's kind of ruining her husband by going to the department store and buying obsessively. Garment workers have the tastefulness, have the fashion sense, uphold national taste and yet they are hardworking. They are frugal. They are not ruining anyone. I found also that a lot of garment workers themselves were quite proud of this notion of themselves as producers of Parisian chic, Mm. that they, you know, could lament this contrived, always cheery Mitty net and make demands for their work, but they also did defend themselves as keepers of a particular kind of craft skill and it seems to have been quite important to them. But there was a second part to your question that I'm not answering. Oh, comparing it to the British, the British and American context. It's the, why is this French question, Trish? I love that question because the vision of the British Victorian seamstress and the American seamstress in this period as well is much more a figure of tragedy, right? The ill-fated, unwed mother, the the spinster in the garret coughing herself to death, the the girl that's about to be a prostitute any day, right? This tragic figure is also ubiquitous in the French romantic tradition, the social realist literature, the economic precarity and sexual availability of Paris's garment workers is very much similarly represented as kind of melodramatic danger. Mm -hmm. The difference though, between those contexts is the female garment worker in France is also seen as an essential part of the aesthetic pleasures of Paris. She's crucial to the French cultural patrimony, right? So the threat to these women of industrialization, of overwork, etc., is a moral one, like with the Victorian kind of British seamstress. But their virtue, I think, elicits less anxiety <laughs> then did concerns about threats to kind of a french way of life that was grounded in their handicraft in their innate fashionability so the benighted victorian seamstress is avoiding the male gaze in her garret right the parisian mininet is this appealing urban spectacle she is a site of male pleasure and a site of national pride and i think that really is the difference that you don't find i think as much this sort of joyful sexualization combined with a sense of national pride. So
3: you set us up, Trish, to understand Mimi Pinson, but...
2: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
3: In the third chapter of the book, well, you you know, you're addressing social philanthropy and uplift and different things throughout the book. But in this third chapter, you're focused on this charitable association um, during this period, 1900 to 1914. Can you tell us a, a little bit about that?
0: So this is the Oeuvre de Mimi Pinson, which included the conservatory Mm -hmm. I talked about earlier. And it was begun by this composer, Gustave Charpentier. He came to fame for his opera Louise, and he himself actually came from a pretty modest working class background, ultimately. I mean, he's the son of a baker, I think. Um, He has this opera Louise in the late 19th century that is the story of a Parisian dressmaker and her bourgeois lover. In Montmartre. And he puts together first the idea of getting free tickets for all female Parisian workers to the theater. And from that, he builds this out into this massive philanthropic organization. He offered classes, a whole panoply of performing arts classes mostly to Parisian women working women, on a couple of weeknights and on Sundays. And the professors for these classes were drawn from dancers and singers at the opera, the opera comique, and prominent composers and performers took part in it. It also, though, beyond the classes and the theater tickets, there was a Mimi Pinson magazine. They had a job placement uh, organization. They sponsored trips for garment workers outside of the city, and then in World War One, as I talk about in the last chapter, they even put together a nursing initiative because these working class women felt like they had been pushed aside by the middle class women of the Red Cross and they wanted to help the Poilu. And so they set up this nursing initiative. So Charpentier was very, very proud of this organization and he kept all his correspondence with the OMP's students. He kept the rules and regulations for membership. Oh, lucky you. (laughs) Yes. Oh, it's so exciting. And the ID cards that they all filled out, um, the magazine. And in these documents, you could see the way that the students, these student workers are pushing against, the organizers have one vision of what this group is going to do for them. The organizers imagine that young, cheerful women who love their work are going to take these classes and then go home to the working class family home and sing songs for their father, right? So that their father doesn't go out to the bar or whatever. The vision here was never that they become professional performers. And Charpentier went out of his way in public to say, don't worry, we're not trying to make professional performers out of these women. Like this is just to make the working class home a little bit more pleasant. In private, he was really proud of the women from his organization that went on to actually become professional performers, and he kept a list of his most successful students.
3: I want to ask Trish about the Parisianness. This is also at some level an urban history and a history of Paris. What does the book, do you think, tell us in a broader sense? Like, does the media have um, have different incarnations at different regions? Like, what's the what's the regional story?
0: It's such a good question. So it is a very Parisian tale, but because the the Parisian workers that I'm interested in here are being given a national prominence, I think that that's helpful, that these stories and songs and such were part of French popular culture, right? So this vision of the Parisian garment worker becomes a quite popular one outside of the city. So, for example, they put on this very... (laughs) cheesy show about Mimi Pinson um, that comes out of this mm. this moment in Algiers, right? Like, so they, they're performing these things everywhere. And if I were to write a sort of like mm-hmm. volume two, I think it would be very much like, how does this image travel, right? I mean, I do think, I don't, I don't have a great answer for you, just I know that this ephemera and this popular culture did travel. What it meant to people in provincial cities to watch, you know, films and plays that featured again and again Parisian women as sort of the end all be all of national taste is really intriguing. I did find that Charpentier, um, (laughs) part of his organization was to have these festivals of the muse of the people, these big, massive festivals that would celebrate Mm. uh, workers, essentially, that using performers from his conservatory. And he took that on tour all over France. And they would, in these different towns, have the Hmm. festival and they would crown a local muse of the people. Um, And they'd go to sort of a coal mining area in the north of France and crown a local muse of the people who's a working class woman who was, I think, working near the coal mines and that sort of thing. So not garment workers, right? And so he definitely saw it as this is something that we can sort of take out into different working class areas um, and celebrate this vision of kind of social community and a a French landscape of work and capital that is, if not peaceful, because he certainly believed that there needed to be reform, but, you know, that that, that it had this sort of healing power. And it's quite popular. People attend this Muse of the People Festival all over France. The other thing that's interesting, when I looked at some of the industrial regulation debates and such, uh, particularly around this question of the red rose, this Mm. artificial flower that turns out was making garment workers sick throughout this period because of the ways that it was being made, which included lead poisoning of the workers themselves. Um, Again and again, there of course, artificial flowers are being made in other cities in France, not just Paris. And these labor inspectors go to all these different places and talk to the people in charge of these flower making establishments in other parts in France, I think was one of the cities in Limoges. They make flowers as well. And they are often talking about the fact that these Mm. are just not, these workers are just not as good as the Paris workers that you have to, you know, that Parisian workers come with much more apprenticeship that these Women in the provinces just don't have the finesse that mm. the Parisian workers do. So it comes through quite a bit um, when you take, when you look at the actual labor discussions, that there was a valuation, a valuing of the Parisian garment workers' skill that that had like a real kind of monetary value for these industrialists. And that comes through in the I talk mm-hmm. about the Franco-British Exposition of 1908 in which they sort of put on display in London what is Parisian industry, what is French industry, and it tends to be, well, look how amazing our French fashion workers are. And there's all this this reporting around in England, the garment industry needs to kind of bring in workers from Paris to kind of teach people how to make corsets and things like that. I don't go into this really fully in the book, but this is a period in which, The garment industry in France, uh, the Belle Parisian workforce has one of the largest populations of immigrant workers in the country. Russian Jews and Eastern European immigrants are increasingly large part of the workforce in Paris. And I think we have to understand Mm. this as a significant context for this nostalgic promotion of a thoroughly French and thoroughly Parisian, as they saw it, white French female midinette in these decades.
3: So the fifth chapter of the book really gets into this period of the strikes of the mm. first couple of decades of the 20th century. And I, I found myself, you know, rooting <laughs> for <laughs> the militant media net um, but then yeah. also, yeah, seeing the ways that other types of projections and fantasies get made around around that figure of the striking female garment worker. Mm. And, and the thing that uh, came up for me in this chapter i mean apart from you know there's lots of things going on here but but one that i specifically wanted to ask you about was yeah to think about the the net in relationship to other male workers
0: mm-hmm.
3: i mean we could talk about other female workers but you know especially in this how male labor so not the bourgeois male right. and maybe it's maybe they they're the same you know in terms of or they share things so that's certainly true with i don't know like the context that i know a little bit about like protective labor legislation in mm-hmm. other places or whatever that you know, working class men adopt all kinds of bourgeois attitudes about women, yep. <laughs> when they're talking about women workers. So, I mean, yeah. So you know what I'm getting at, like, yeah. How does the media net illuminate our understanding of of labor activism and of the kind of gendered
0: politics of labor militancy? Yeah. In this chapter, I look at this wave of strikes in Parisian couture that go from 1901 up through 1919, and it's almost every year there's some major strike in the garment industry and often it is being started by um, female garment workers. And there's these decades of agitation in the needle trades that actually do bring some incredibly concrete reforms. So, I do look at the beginning of the chapter at these mostly bourgeois male representations of the striking midi-net as a girl out for a lark, as a flirt, looking at you know the the coverage in the mainstream kind of bourgeois press of the strikes that are see these women in extremely sexualized images. But then, yes, I got into within union circles, within the circles of labor, socialist men within that kind of world, they at once replicating some of the bourgeois, they're pushing against some of what the bourgeois men are saying. They're saying, don't just talk about our women in this way, right? They're they're mothers, they're sisters. They do defend sort of the honor of the midi-net from bourgeois male representation. But at the same time, they absolutely replicate socialist men, men within the sort of union circles, replicate the notion of these women as feather-brained non-activists that they're they're taking to the street because it's fun because they have a new hat because they want to most troublingly for these socialist men because they want to sleep with policemen or middle-class men, that they are class traitors, essentially. And there's one particular strike where the male head of the union is saying, like, you're not going to get any more than you've already got. We have to end the strike. And the women are pushing back and saying, no, we want to keep going. And the police report says, like, this poor guy is just exasperated. The ladies, the girls won't listen to him. But then again, in some of these working-class memoirs from this period, I talk about a labor leader named René Michaud, who was a teenager at the time of some of these wartime strikes during World War One, And he recalls very clearly that his factory didn't go on strike until the garment workers, the midi nets, began their strike. And for him, it was the working women, along with some more radical young male workers like him, who made the wartime strike, the wartime strike successful um, and he remembers even singing in this uh, one of his strike actions singing a strike song that was written by the net, a net strike song so it's moments like that that I think have been sort of left out of the labor history. But it was really fun because you see a lot of these women early on saying like, oh, no, 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 we're not Net, Like, don't call us that. You know, we're just mothers trying to feed our kids and that sort of thing. And by 1918, you see this new brand of Net militancy, which says, yeah, we're Net, And we have our own labor activist culture that's now been going for almost a couple decades. Um, and it was really fun to sort of dig into that and find some of these characters who haven't been prominently depicted in in the historiography,
3: that last chapter, Trish uh, moves on to to talk about the war and what happens. So, if we've got this, you know, militant Medinet figure, um, the frivolous figure, you know, this fashionable figure, we've got all of these different versions and takes on, you know, and aspects of the Medinet up until 1914. So, what does the war
0: do to mm.
3: Mimi Pinson?
0: so i think it's maybe not that surprising that when something like the cataclysm that is world war 1 happens that this comforting eroticized image of the home front would become even more prominent right that th- th- this is something that the poilu many of whom come from Paris, but maybe to your earlier question, what I found was even lots of the soldiers that weren't from Paris were really invested in this notion of the pretty Parisian working lady that was going to write to them. And they start this pen pal campaign, essentially. The Mimi songs that come out of Charpentier's philanthropic organization go to him in his telling and say, we want a part in the war effort. We've been left out of the war effort because we're working women and we don't have lots of You know, cash and free time, we've been left out of the war effort. How can we help? And one way that they help is creating this nursing uh, organization that I talked about earlier, um, in which Charpentier actually paid for the training of these working class women to get some sort of rudimentary nursing training and then send them to some of these soldiers' hospitals. And then this pen pal campaign in which the Midinet construct these little cockades, these cockades, and send them almost as good luck charms, to soldiers on the front to say you're being protected and sort of loved by a midi net back in Paris. And Charpentier, again, thank God for Charpentier's desire to keep everything that ever had anything to do with his (laughs) organization. He kept all of the letters and postcards, um, even some of the cockades. And these soldiers are writing to these women who they don't know personally. The women weren't allowed to put their their names mostly on these things so that they couldn't be found, I guess. <laughs> but the the soldiers are writing back maybe unsurprisingly saying, like, can I get your address? Like, can I come and see you when I'm in Paris? Um, I really love the cockade that you made for me. But also just saying, you know, it made me feel like maybe I wasn't going to die today. And, you know, these, these dark but also beautiful human connection that was built through that. And the cockades were imagined again and again by the soldiers and by the women that were making them as this link, this charged link of basically love between the home front and the trench. And these soldiers, many of them not from Paris, many of them working class guys themselves, talk again and again in their letters back to Charpentier's organization about how tasteful these cockades are, how it shows the, the fine handiwork of the Parisian garment worker, that they have this image as well, and it that it meant something to them in this dark moment. One of the only specific garment workers that I was able to find Signed a letter to these soldiers, and her name was unusual. You know, a lot of the names are kind of hard to find on a genealogy site because it's, you know, Pauline Leclerc and there's a hundred Pauline Leclercs or something. But I happened upon a young woman named Marcel Niewileselka, not pronouncing it right, I'm sure, a 19 year old Parisian seamstress who was of Polish origins. And I was able on the French kind of ancestry.com to find her family. And I wrote to her granddaughter and she sent me copies of letters that uh, soldiers had sent to her grandmother, who the grandmother as a young seamstress sewed all of these warm sweaters as part of the, the Mimi Pinson effort and sent them to soldiers. The only reason I mention this is because in my correspondence with this woman's granddaughter, I told her a little bit about my project. And she wrote back and said, well, you could have these letters, but just so you know, my grandmother was not a mini net she was just, just a seamstress. Like she hmm. really bristled at the idea of calling her grandmother a midi I huh. think because of the sort of erotic, <laughs> you know, connotations of it, when in, I looked at the genealogy, she was a garment worker who married a bourgeois painter in this period, <laughs> which I thought was really interesting. And that her granddaughter was really denying, like she wasn't a midi She was just helping sew things for soldiers, which I think was really interesting.
3: Wow, so many fascinating uh, stories along the way of doing this project, Trish. After the war, I mean, where does she go?
0: So you see this image of the Net. I, I said before, I got lots of other material from the 30s and 40s where you continue to see. There's some really fun pulp novels, you know, where it's a Net who's kidnapped or has to create a dress with spy um, plans sewn into it and these sorts of like really fun, like 1930s pulp fiction stuff. But I decided to sort of stop it in 1919, because I guess you just have to stop your book somewhere. And I think I felt less sure-footed as we moved into kind of the era of the popular front. And, uh, you know, I'm by training a late 19th century historian, and maybe I felt like I had strayed too far from home. But the image of the midnight is still there throughout mm-hmm. And you know, I would say that it's still present in sort of the the DNA of Parisian pop culture, right? That you you see, I think, resonances of it. Um, I mean, Paris today, there's still all these statues all around the city of Mimi Pinson, of yeah. Minette, of garment workers with their pretty hats on November 11th, the, the St. Catherine Day, which is a festival in which garment workers, single garment workers, go out and make these fabulous hats and The Mm -hmm. idea is that hopefully they'll be married before the next one. Whatever. What I think is important, broadly speaking, about this moment, if we think about France even to this day, is thinking about the way that these images of French taste and fashionability and a particular kind of French femininity, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's all still there, even if it's in the side of like Emily in Paris. Oh, God. Um, (laughs) Not to bring up the show that shall not be named, but... um... (laughs) I mean, I haven't even watched the show, so I don't know, but <laughs> I think it gets at something about this vision of Paris that, again, like it's it's full circle back to kind of my, my Eiffel Tower poster and then actually getting to Paris and watching a man like urinate all over the metro, right? <laughs> the, the romance of the city has a lot of power, but it's a power that covers over so much. And I think, particularly when it comes to issues of class, this kind of notion of the Parisian woman as just effortlessly lovely and effortlessly dealing with gender difference, right? This comes back to a kind of old debate in gender history in France about I'm thinking of Mona Ozouf writing about mm. French singularity, right? That French women have less trouble with sexual difference than American feminists who seem like they just can't. <laughs> can't handle (laughs) this, that, you know, that French women somehow are better with men or, you know, whatever the cliche might be. And I think a lot of that is connected to a particular kind of bourgeois femininity in France, but it's, it's also related to this image.
3: They're better moms too, right? As we (laughs) we know. Right. I mean, I have so many things that I want to continue to talk about for hours now, but including like, I think now I kind of do want you to watch Emily in Paris and like write some brilliant, Like how the idea of the working girl in Paris, like what what she <laughs> has been produced to. I mean, she's from away, but um, but also yeah, that idea that that the sort of transnational perceptions of these figures. You know, there's also a French image of a, of an American working girl, or you know that that right. kind of how these things kind of cross oceans too. But we don't we don't have time to talk about all of that. I do have time, <laughs> however, to ask you, Trish. You know what. What's been going on since this book came out in 2019? What you see for yourself in terms of projects to come?
0: So what's been going on since December 2019 is that the the pandemic started right after it. And I was remote schooling my children Uh, and working from home and, you know, had a partner who was also working from home, but still it was... You know, nightmare scenario. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of work. And I feel like it's important for me to mark that with this question because mm-hmm. I often feel like when I get to this point of any kind of interview with someone whose work I admire, it just always feels like, oh my God. And they're already doing this whole other thing. And oh yeah. That's just so it's so demoralizing in some way, right? I sort of think
3: right now I think of this question as an, as an opportunity for people to tell me whatever they want, including yeah. <laughs> especially after this last couple of years, like including,
0: yeah, I don't know yet. (laughs) Yeah. Which is kind of where I feel like
3: I'm at a lot of the time. So.
0: So my first answer is that, gosh, and this might be like a whole nother podcast that, but I, I think the pandemic and in the States, at least like the Trump years have me thinking really deeply about what the academy even is, like what I'm doing, mm-hmm. right? Like <laughs> what my job means. Yep. And this is not to say that I'm finding my job meaningless. On the contrary, I'm just trying to sort of the pandemic highlighted for me, what are the things that I can do? What mm-hmm. are the things that I'm good at doing? And what are the things I care about doing? And the book coming out, basically, as the pandemic sort of crashed down. I love my book, you know, I, it's like, love it and I want to cradle it and I want people to read it but it also sort of felt like oh who cares right like it just <laughs> feels so it feels so frothy right yeah, like in some I, way I totally like get a history that. of so that that was tough it felt really confusing hmm. right to to want to be promoting the book but knowing that it just wasn't gonna happen and sort of feeling like oh well 11 years of research is okay um so that's part partly my answer is i think this is a time of really kind of for me thinking through what is the value of you know a a monograph 11 years in the making and maybe that's just because that's how i write and you know whatever it might be but The other thing was thinking more about the value of what I do in the classroom. And to that end, I do actually have something that I'm beginning to work on, like very, very beginning, like a little Mm. zygote, the beginning of a book project with Tiffany Florville, whose amazing book, Mobilizing Black Germany, um, has come out to great acclaim, rightfully so. So Tiffany and I are writing, just signed a contract for a book in Rutledge's series, 25 Women Who Shaped, dot, dot, dot. And our book, which will be kind of targeted at undergraduate history courses, will be 25 Women Who Shaped European Feminisms. And we're really excited. The idea for us, of the excitement about this book that we developed together over the course of the pandemic, just talking on Zoom we've never met in real life, is that Books of this genre tend to feature almost exclusively kind of white, cis, heterosexual historical figures and that European feminisms are often taught as this primarily linear linear narrative of white feminist progress. And this book really reframes that in that the teaching of European feminism can highlight and even center, I think, uh, feminists of color, non-binary and queer feminists and expand the geographic focus to encompass spaces of European empire and decolonization. And so it's really, like, we literally just signed the contract for it, but we're very excited.
3: Oh my God. Like I follow both of you on Twitter. How do I not already know about this? Well, it's a oh, wait, oh, you're, the, oh, you're breaking news. This
0: is what? breaking news, Raggedy. Okay. I was like
3: feeling really, you know, a little sad and a little clueless, but um, now I feel awesome because I'm, I'm going to help introduce this, amazing project to the world. That sounds fantastic. And I cannot wait. I call dibs. (laughs) (laughs) I know it's not French studies, but I don't care. There'll be some French women in there. There'll be a bunch of French ladies in it. Yeah. So, (laughs) so yeah, let's talk some more about that. And yeah, I I wish both of you um so many wonderful things as you work on what sounds like a great project and i and i hear i mean all the things you said at the outset in your response to this question i totally we could have a whole other podcast series on that so maybe when when that other book gets underway we can talk about it i've talked about this with some other colleagues yeah you know in academia that like how do we think about what we're doing now you know just yeah what what are we doing
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a really big question mark.
3: Yeah, those questions are so important and I and I am always so grateful when someone like you brings them up in in the course of the interview. You never want to like shove people into a corner where they have to right. say things about what's hard right. and what's what's challenging, but but when people volunteer that, I think it's really important for other people to hear other people who are experiencing that kind of thing who yeah. you know can feel validated and comforted by that. But also like the I do know that you know a number of students re listen to this podcast and podcasts like it and i think it's important for us to reveal that we're people <laughs> and that there are yeah. a lot of cracks in in what we do and how we do it and how this is all set up and that i don't know about you Trish but i had a ton of illusions about that before i became mm-hmm. a, a faculty mm-hmm. member and they have one by 12 been <laughs> <laughs> kind of knocked over in different ways and and so yeah i i'm really
0: grateful I don't know if the academy that I imagined ever existed, but it certainly doesn't now. And and in some ways, that's that's to the better, right? There are ways in which the academy has changed. I mean, just Davidson College in my 18 years here has changed so dramatically in ways that I'm really excited about and proud of. But I do think... It's a strange job to be a historian to be a faculty member at, at an institution of higher learning because we are we are doing labor but we also sort of convince ourselves over the course of graduate school that we're not, you know, laborers that we're doing something the life of the mind, right? Is this grandiose <laughs> project. Yeah, yeah. And then something like the pandemic happens and the balance between home and work collapses (laughs) and you you fully understand that you are like a laborer for an institution that is paying your bills. Not that you didn't understand that before, but you fully kind of feel it. Oh yeah. And and it does it has for me and a lot of people that you know that I work with and I'm friends with in the academy has brought up lots of questions that I think were percolating before the pandemic, but it certainly sort of intensified. What do I want to do with this interesting and wonderful job? you know, and what parts of it can I do without to make it viable for me?
3: (laughs) Well, I'm Trisha, I'm just so grateful that you you took the time to speak with me about about this great book, but but also about some of these other things, because I think it's really I mean, I've loved every minute of this conversation. Oh, my God, me too. Such a pleasure. Thanks so much.